Welcome to the Listening Party podcast for November 6th, 2020. I'm your host, Rebecca Haas, the Director of Community Engagement for Pacific Opera. The Listening Party is a time when we get together, as friends in this virtual reality. We connect as a community through sharing music and stories from the world of opera. Today's guest is well-known Canadian soprano Miriam Khalil. Miriam is a Juno-nominated artist, and she has sung on numerous stages across North America. She is also the Associate Artistic Director of Against the Grain Theatre in Toronto. She was last seen in Victoria at the Bauman Centre in a performance that I will never forget, of Ire by Osvaldo Golijov. And just this past month, she created and shared a personal project for Pacific Opera. It's entitled Songs My Parents Taught Me. It's a musical video documentary. I don't have a shorter way to say it yet. Miriam not only sings in this, but she created it from start to finish. Miriam is an artist that I have admired for many years, and I have met her professionally on several occasions. I was very delighted when she got in touch with me about an idea she had. She called me this summer. She was considering creating a program and it would exclusively feature music sung in Arabic. But she wasn't sure. This was the music of her childhood and her family, but as a professional singer in opera, this music was relegated to the land of encore. It was not the main course she offered. It was more of an after-dinner mint musically. It felt risky and vulnerable to her. I, in fact, couldn't remember ever having heard a classical singer perform a program in Arabic, but I also knew this was a program I wanted to hear. We talked at length, and I encouraged her to create what she felt compelled to create, and she did. I hope you will take the time to watch the video if you haven't already. It's moving and beautiful, and you can find it on our website, pacificopera.ca, on the page for all to hear. Through archival footage and contemporary film, Miriam shares songs and stories about growing up as an immigrant in Canada. I was so inspired by her vision when we talked that I asked if she would consider mentoring four other artists to create something in the same model. I asked if she would share her insights about story and image and the digital medium, and I was lucky she said yes. So this past month, Miriam was the lead mentor for four Canadian singers who are members of Pacific Opera's very first Civic Engagement Quartet. These singers are from across Canada and received mentoring in the virtual world from Miriam and several other mentors with expertise in acting for film and devised theatre. These singers were invited to follow her lead and think about what story they would like to tell musically. They could choose anything, but it had to be personal, authentic and important to them, a story they felt compelled to share. What has emerged are four diverse and compelling creative projects. They're all unique. In each case, Miriam encouraged the singer to trust their own instincts and to share what mattered to them with their voices and images. As you can tell, Miriam is a very interesting artist, and so I invited her to chat with me on this podcast about how she got into singing, how did she reconcile her cultural background musically, and what are her hopes for the future of opera? Before we get into Miriam's artistry and her views about the future of opera, I wanted to start with her origin story. 
I love singers' origin stories. We all come from such different backgrounds and still all find ourselves in opera somehow. This is Miriam's story. So I always, I feel like I've always sung, but I, I have very specific memories of when I started singing and I was probably about three years old and I would annoy the whole family by waking up really early in the morning and just circling the dining room table and, and singing, you know, children's songs over and over again. And then my dad would wake up and go, okay, come on, let's go, let's go. And then he would like sit and sing with me and like play with me in the morning. And so that was a big one. And then another one was um, uh, there, it was always like, church music was always there in the background but I remember um and my brothers will will be very upset that I tell this memory but um they were they're quite a bit older than me and they were watching the movie The Shining and I snuck in and I watched a part of it until they found me like cowering in the corner and then they ushered me off and uh and then I had fears of the bathroom <laughs> So my big thing was like singing prayers while in the bathroom, like I would just sing like all the, you know, things that would come to mind, like that I knew from church. And, uh, and that was kind of, my parents were like, well, why, why all of a sudden is she praying <laughs> while she's in the bathroom? And I didn't, I never really told them until I got older. And I, then I realized, oh yeah, I was probably about, I don't know, four or five when I saw like that scene in the bathtub where the old lady comes out and turns into like, or the woman comes out and turns into an old lady. Um, and so uh, not till I was 14, when I saw that movie again, did I realize what movie that is and how I shouldn't have seen it. <laughs> Miriam comes from a strong musical tradition. Her father has a beautiful voice, she told me. He played the accordion, sang in choirs, not so her mom. Her mom says that she can't sing at all, but she loves music. The family joke is that Miriam's strength of voice comes from her mom, and its beauty from her dad. I asked Miriam, what kind of music did she listen to growing up? So I grew up with this young singer called Remy Bendeli, and she was like a very young singer. She would have been, you know, four or five singing with her father and then like growing up and singing these children's songs and then all the Feidus and all that stuff and then we moved to Canada and the kind of the big the first big song that I learned in choir before I could even learn like speak English was Greatest Love of All by Whitney Houston and uh, I came home and I my mom was I remember my mom was napping and I was like I have to sing you this song and I was like weeping while I sang it to her because it just, I loved it so much. I loved music and it sort of just poured out of me and it was something that came naturally. And it was something that when I did it, I was seen. And when I first moved to Canada, I, it was like, you know, someone takes away your voice. All of a sudden I couldn't speak. I was in a French immersion school where we were learning French in class and then outside, they were speaking in English. So it was like this, <laughs> and I didn't speak either language. Um, and so when I went um, to school, I remember finding the one person that looked Arabic. Her name was Zaina. And I said, your name is Zaina, and I know you speak Arabic. And I said this to her in Arabic. And she's like, I don't speak Arabic. 
I said, no, I know you're Arabic. I, I can tell you look like me. <laughs> and she said, well, I understand a little bit. So we were kind of like communicating through, you know, her, you know, broken Arabic, me with whatever I, like sign language I had. Um, and I had kind of no idea of what was sort of going on. And now what I remember is not speaking the language and then all of a sudden speaking the language. So I don't remember the in between, but it was about a year. And then um, I joined the choir and that was the big thing for me is that I could just finally just make sounds. I would have been, I think, eight. And no one knew I had a voice yet. And I remember they had like this lip syncing competition and I didn't understand what that was and everyone was doing it. And so I brought in like a random tape from my brother <laughs> and I put it in and I pretended to lip sync, but I didn't know the song. And I remember being just humiliated. And I just said to the teacher, can I sing to you after class? And what did I sing? I sang Greatest Love of All, like my favorite song that, at, at that age. And she was like, this girl has a voice. And they let me, instead of doing a lip sync, they let me actually sing a solo. And that became a, kind of my way of being seen. Okay, here I am now. Like, I'm not just like in this invisible person that doesn't speak the language. So all of a sudden, I've, I've got this voice. You might think that opera singers only love opera. But often because they love music very deeply, they have a pretty varied palette. For Miriam, it was Whitney Houston and heavy metal. Her brothers were into Metallica, Aerosmith, Tea Party, Soundgarden. So while she was listening to Whitney, she was hearing this other music through the walls. She says these were powerful influences on her opera sensibilities, and they gave her something rather unique. Well, I think like a sense of like imagination and show, because I didn't have like opera in my sort of upbringing, obviously, but there was something about um, like storytelling in those songs that um, especially the really good ones had very strong stories um, and I would just you can kind of like imagine what was sort of going on and then with the Whitney Houston stuff it just gave me the courage to just sing like to just use my voice. So what was the opera aha moment? She went to U of T to study music therapy and ended up taking opera workshop a mandatory class. Miriam picks up the story. Just in the chorus, and we we're doing um, Poulenc's uh, Dialogue des Carmelites, Dialogue of the Carmelites. And, and I thought, this is amazing. Look at the sound that's coming out of their body. And I just knew that I could make sound. I didn't know how it reached people. And that was it. We did that opera, and every night in the chorus, I would die, and I would cry while I was on the floor, because <laughs> that story was so powerful. It was like everything came together when I was in that opera. The music, the story. I always loved expressing like something. It wasn't always just about making sound, but it was about expressing what I felt and how it came out in the music. And it, you know, with music therapy, I was it was even more kind of attuned to that. Like I, I kind of recognized it as something that was really important. And that all came together in one thing. And that was it. I was changed. Miriam didn't see a whole opera until she was in university. She was actually in an opera before she saw an opera. What was her first opera? 
it actually was La Boheme, a pretty good starter. I asked her if she'd seen anything like that when she was growing up. The plays in that, that I've, you know, I've not seen very many, but I remember my mom saying, well, I would bring your brothers all the time to go see Feydouz and, you know, and, um, and she, she would sing and act and, and we have tapes of the, you know, I love it, tapes of these plays where we just sit and listen and you could hear, you know, the, the singing and the story and I would, you know, be really, really engaged in it. Um, I, I do think that it is in every single culture. Um, it's just we, we view it differently because it's not something that we grew up with, like the Europeans grew up with opera. So we grew up with musical theater. And you can say that that's a kind of a big, a big thing where we're from. For anyone who goes into music seriously, to really study it, they will have many teachers along the way. And in Miriam's journey, there was an amazing teacher when she was in high school. This teacher was pretty smart. She made a deal with Miriam. For every pop song she learned, she had to learn one art song. They made a trade. Over time, Miriam began to prefer the art song. That teacher also would accompany her on guitar so she could sing Arabic songs in the studio recitals as well as her classical songs. Once she went to university, Miriam had an experience that would later shape her own view on teaching. Miriam is what's known in the business as a natural singer. That's someone who can hear a voice and imitate it, but have no idea probably how they did it. Now, being a natural singer will take you a long way. You're a very quick learner. But as you go along and music becomes more complicated, the technique part of training becomes important. It also meant that when teachers met her in university, they thought she was more advanced in her training than she was. And that created some challenges. Um, I got in a lot of trouble vocally, I think. And, and the solution was, well, maybe, maybe it's the pop that you are singing. And maybe it's that, um, and I, at that point I had stopped singing pop, like I wasn't belting anymore. Um, but you know, maybe it's the Arabic that you speak at home. Maybe it's too far back and maybe that's why you're, but really it was just me trying to make a, like figure out what, what to sound like. And I think that's kind of a big danger because when people say something to young artists, I think young artists take it, internalize it, and then interpret it in a way that can be harmful. So I think it's really important, you know, when people are explaining something to say, well, something's not right, but let's explore these things instead of trying to put a label on it. So I took that as, okay, I have to stop singing in Arabic because it's, you know, for some reason it's hindering me now when <laughs> it never has before. I eventually wanted to just give something back because I had a lot of, you know, Arabs and Lebanese people and, you know, people just from that I knew from Ottawa that would come to these concerts and they would sit through German, you know, leader and French art song. And they always loved the Spanish because I think it was the closest to Arabic. And that was for me a big thing. I just decided, okay, I have to start figuring out a way to do Arabic. So I would do it in, in encores. And then I was like, well, that wasn't so bad. <laughs> I did it. It didn't like affect my technique, you know, and then eventually I would start putting it in. Um, I started putting it in little doses 
And I realized if I just sang it how I sing and didn't, you know, decide that I had to all of a sudden sound like an Arabic singer, it was fine. So it was always like, like you said, these two worlds that were, that I was walking like these two worlds until I realized that I am just this, I, it's okay to be all of those things and none of those things, if that makes sense. And I, and that's just who I am. I've always been that. I moved here at a young enough age that I can still be both and neither. <laughs> so, and I kind of like that. I kind of like that I can still be a, an Arabic speaking Canadian and falter in my Arabic and I'll speak Arabic in ways and I'll like insert English sentences sometimes if I can't find the word and it's frustrating, but that's, that's who I am and I, and I can keep improving on it, but yeah, it's acceptance. I, I actually have one um, Chinese student and when she came, um, she, she came to Canada and like started studying with, with me within months. And um, so we would communicate literally through Google Translate. <laughs> and, and I remember when she started, I was like, oh, you're pulling everything back. Like, I don't understand why. And she would sing, you know, like, but it would be a bit. And, and I would say, what if, and then I, all of a sudden I just said, can you play me? Because she's a, this really amazing composer and she writes her own songs. Can you play me some of your songs? And then all of a sudden it brightened up and it was all, I was like, that, that, that's it. <laughs> For her, she just needed to find her comfort of where her home is. It really struck me in our conversations about music and language and cultural backgrounds, how significant acceptance is and that idea of home. As artists, when we're beginning, we may think that we are not enough for the art form we have chosen. We think we're learning something that means we have to change who we are, or we're layering something on top so we can be accepted. But the lesson is so clear in Miriam's stories. Her student and Miriam herself both had what they needed when they stripped away the idea that they had to be someone other than who they are when they sing. The voice they needed was there all the time. Hearing these stories from Miriam, I began to wonder what her thoughts are about diversifying the stage and the audience. How do we make opera make sense to people from other cultures? Should we even be trying to do that? Yeah, like I think that we're in this art form that can be really niche. And, and I think that's part of the problem is that that's the sort of perception of what opera is, is that it's niche. Um, but I actually think that it is very universal. It's really just a story with the most incredible music that drives the emotional sort of storyline. And, and I think that's something that we take for granted because we're, we're in it. But when you're explaining it to someone of another, let's say culture, let's say, let's, I'll talk about my parents, for example because they were never really into opera, obviously, like that's not their, something that they listened to um, at home. But when I started doing it, they're like, oh, this is really good. I really, this is so beautiful. And I remember I said to my mom, like Salome was playing at Opera Lira and I said, 
do you want to come see this opera? It's about Salome. And she said, well, she knew the story. And I'm like, the music's weird. <laughs> and I don't know if you're going to like it. She's like, okay, totally, I'll go. She was, you know, and I, I think it's because she loves music. She was so immersed in it. Afterwards, she was like, that was amazing. Like she was going on and on and on about how amazing it was, how beautiful the music was. And, and I think like, I found Strauss kind of difficult to listen to when I first started. Now it's the most beautiful thing. But when I first started, it wasn't, you know, it's not that it's atonal, but there's chords that are hard to understand. And how do you bring other cultures in? I think there's ways to do it. I think there, it's not just inviting them. It's not just um, engaging artists, you know, that are, you know, people of color or indigenous or black. Like, I think it's more than that. I think you have to bring art that they're interested in, bring them to this space or go to their space. And I think because then you're engaging with the community, it's not just about like having, you know, people in the seats. It's about getting to know a community. I saw the abduction of the Seraglio was playing here at the COC and the director was Lebanese and he had inserted, um, uh, a Muslim prayer um, and he had made it not like he wasn't the villain you know what I mean like we normally see he, it was like this enlightened beautiful story and I'm I'm not Muslim but I connect with that culture so much that hearing that because and when I lived in Damascus we we heard the call to prayer five times a day I wept and I what I thought was why aren't there more Arabs here because if there was more Arabs here they would they would come to opera after this like we did a you know we did a concert um it was called Sultans and Divas at Kerner Hall and it was this kind of risky thing that the Canadian um, Arab Institute was putting on Kerner Hall is this beautiful concert hall in Toronto. It was, I don't know how many, I think it's like 1500 or something, the, this, the, the um, capacity. It's a big hall. And I remember thinking, how are we gonna sell this out? The Arabs are kind of on the outskirts uh, a lot. Uh, you know. So whenever I hear Arabic in the city, I get very excited. I'm like, how are we gonna get them downtown? Like, this isn't gonna happen. It was sold out. It was sold out um, because we had um, bands that were Arabs, Sultans of String. Their main person is Lebanese. We had Octo Echo. It's an orchestra. A lot of them are Western, but they play Arabic music. They had uh, Julian Asrella and I as the divas, you know, and it was just this night of like Arabic artists doing what they do because we all did it differently. And at the very end, we did an Ave Maria with a Muslim prayer over top of it people wept and and then for the encore we did Bintu Shalabiya and this I've never you know I've I've never sung a song where everybody started singing with me so I wasn't expecting this to happen so the whole this everybody the whole band all the bands were singing together and we do this song and all of a sudden the whole audience gets up and starts singing and I'm <laughs> 
standing there trying not to cry because this was like always been one of my favorite songs, but I didn't know everyone else felt the same way. So I think that's what I mean by bringing people to the space and having them do things that they're interested in. You know, we have your video uh, that you so beautifully made, Songs My Parents Taught Me. And we could talk about lots of things about the video. But I think the thing I want to ask you is, um, what did it feel like to sing in the language of your childhood? What was that like? For me, when I sing in Arabic, I feel like I'm um, not thinking so much about proper sound as I am about making beautiful sound and coloring the words the way that comes very naturally. I don't have to think, oh, how would I color it? It just kind of happens because I think the meaning of that word and then the color comes out. I wanted to jump in here and explain color. This is a word that singers use all the time and I don't know that it makes a lot of sense to an outside person. So here's what we mean. When a singer uses the word color, what we mean is that we're being like actors. We are delivering text with a clear meaning by the tone of the voice. Now, yes, a composer gives us notes, so with those notes we have a melody and a structure, but within that we are still using the tone of our sound, dynamics, consonants, vowels, breath, a lot of tools that help us express whatever it is we're trying to express to you, love, fear, excitement, and we call that color. It's kind of like a, a moment where you, you're just kind of speaking and it's happening and it's natural. What was the reaction of your family? So when I finally sent them the video, my mom was like, she called me crying and she was just like, this is way beyond what I thought it would be. And, and I think for them, they didn't, I didn't tell them what the project would be. I just said, I'm doing these Arabic songs. And so to have it sort of as a dedication to them, I think meant a huge deal to them. But then also, you know, it was really cute because my dad's like, do you know what else you should sing? Like, it was so cute. Like, it was always immediately like this, um, it brought back this thing and he started singing on the phone, this song that I should sing. And I was like, I knew the song, but I just wanted to hear his voice, you know? And it's just this thing, this, this kind of unspoken language that we have through music, which I think is just like a really beautiful thing. I love that we've gone from it sort of the encore numbers slid in at the end. <laughs> now it's the feature video and yeah. now your dad's feeding you more repertoire. <laughs> so what are your hopes for the future musically when you start to see how you can live in both worlds now comfortably, uh, that there's passion for you in both worlds? What does this open up for you? Um, I I don't know. I think it opens up permission to do things that we think are taboo. Like, for example, maybe singing an aria in Arabic instead of in, you know, the Italian or a translated English. It, it gives me kind of a, a hope and a permission to feel like I'm not just doing this as like a hobby or like uh, an encore, but it's like legitimizing a voice that is sometimes suppressed 
And I think that is uh, really important right now. And what we're learning is um, what we've been told is not necessarily the truth about what classical repertoire is. And, and we're not saying to obliterate anything. I, I love singing Mozart. I love singing Puccini. Like those two composers like are everything in my world. Um, but I don't think that it means that I have to, that the Arabic repertoire is not just as legit. And I think that's something that we have to sort of start coming around to when we think of, you know, um, composers that are outside of, you know, the, you know, the top 10. <laughs> and then when you think of how big our world is and how those composers are not necessarily top 10 in the world, you know, and we've just decided, somebody decided that they are, and we have um, accepted that as truth. And I think that is, you know, I've actually forgotten your question, but I feel like that is the hope for me is that we can start to respect um, where everyone is from and where what everyone brings to the table instead of saying that is not a good enough experience and this is where you're at. When opera is really, it's just, you know, a play with music unamplified. That's what it is. And you can do that in any language. You can do that in any culture. And we, um, we need to kind of wrap our heads around that. I'm gonna let you take this one step further for me and imagine uh, the future that you would love to see in our industry, what would you love to see? You know, if we could have it any way we want it and it's 25 years from now, what do you hope a season looks like for an opera company? Well, what artists are we seeing? To me, when I think of the actual house, I think it will include maybe like Indian music play or, you know, if we do like Arabic music, if we do an indigenous story, with music and it's not like it doesn't have to be opera like and these are things that are accessible to all communities in this space that we hold as the opera house we can be specialized in what we specialize in and that's okay but if you let's say do an, a new story about i don't know like an a, an arabic person to have actual Arabic music in it and feel the the braveness of actually using the Arabic language. I just always, I find that difficult when I'm watching a movie and all the actors are of a culture and we're hearing the language is English because it needs to be accessible to the person. And I find that alienating. I would rather read surtitles and hear the actual language. And I think that's what my dream is is that we're when we're using a story of a certain culture to actually hear the beautiful language and hear the colors of that language and have it be composed by a person of that culture or and i'm not saying to alienate people that are not of that culture but i just think that it has to be it has to be authentic it has to come from a place that is real um, and it's not a specific sound that we think that culture sounds like, if that makes sense.
I would buy tickets to that opera house. I would love to go. <laughs> I would love to see the art from all those different places with the singing and the music and what the stage would look like. And then see Tosca on another night. Like I just want yeah. to be part of a, of a larger, yeah, of just larger art form sharing so that all those, they're all excellent and all beautiful and all wonderful. And I like the variety. I would love it. <laughs> like, I think if we're in Canada, like we have to look at it in a different way because we're not European you know, and, um, and if you're inviting people to come and live in a country um, that is supposed to be everybody and everyone's equal, then we need to make art that is equal. And that is, you know, relevant to everybody. And that's, I think that's a, it's a hurdle. It's, it's a big thing, but it's doable. Well, what's life without a few hurdles? I would love to buy a ticket to Miriam's Theatre 25 years in the future, or maybe sooner. Imagine it. An arts hall that is the centre for music, dance, singing, cross-cultural. In my work at Pacific Opera, I provide a program to the Intercultural Association for their youth group. They're all recent immigrants, mostly from Syria, and the two people who run that program, they're quite wonderful, Robin and Nabila, we met this summer and we talked about what we would program this year. And something that Robin shared really resonates and I think applies to this conversation I've been having with Miriam. He told me that when he talked to the youth about the opera presentations, he told them that opera was something that is held in European culture as a form of high artistic achievement, artistic excellence. He then asked them, what is there in your culture that is similar an art form that you feel is of high artistic achievement, the height of expression or skill. Of course, they could all name an art form that fit. What a great idea. Every culture is included because every culture has a form of artistic expression that is respected, that requires skill that people hold value around, that is deemed by them as excellent. My thanks to Miriam for this generous conversation. I really enjoyed her stories and insights from her journey so far. Now, she has contributed a rich Spotify playlist from her path. You can find the liner notes on the podcast webpage and the playlist on Spotify. I'm going to warn you, it goes the gamut from Strauss's Zalame to Dream On from Aerosmith to the group Octo Echo. And if you haven't seen it yet, do check out her video, Songs My Parents Taught Me. All this and the links you need are at pacificopera.ca. Well, that's all for this episode. Join me in December for stories from artists about favourite seasonal music and holiday concerts from years past. It promises to provide a great playlist. I thought I would share quickly one of my own musical memories from my time when I was singing lead in a choir in Toronto. We would always have a three-service night on December 24th. All choir singers know this drill. And the only thing that was open on Bloor Street, right below the church, on the 24th of December, before a midnight service, was a little Japanese restaurant. I so well remember that we would bundle up in our coats, dash over, usually our gowns still on, and eat sushi and have a little warm sake. It was grand. I'm Rebecca Haas for Pacific Opera, reminding you to stay safe and healthy. Until the next time. Bye for now.